The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 39. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the latest Star Trek Discovery episode, If Memory Serves. And joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, Father Corey Stika is on assignment, as we say in the biz, uh, which means he's just not available Ooh, today. He's Section 31 <laughs> today. <laughs> yes, he's he's a liaison with uh, the Episcopal Church or something. <laughs> not the Episcopal Church, but the Episcopacy, maybe. Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, he's just got some personal stuff. He's going to deal with uh, some business today. So, uh, he wasn't available, which I'm sure he will regret given yeah. uh, how cool this episode is, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. I'm so sorry. He's not here. Cause I'd love to hear his yeah. thoughts on this one. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, but before we do get into that, and that's a little teaser for you folks uh, remember, please to like the secrets of star Trek, uh, on Facebook, uh, on retweeted on Twitter to leave us comments on our website or in iTunes or Facebook or Twitter and other places. And if you have not yet done so, please subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube where you could hit the bell to get notifications. Um, This all helps us share the podcast with a bigger audience and connects it uh, with all the Trekkies out there who we think would appreciate our show and would, would enjoy it and to kind of extend our reach a bit. So we would appreciate if you could do that. Or if you could also write um, a review on iTunes or other uh, podcast directories, that helps a huge uh, amount. Uh, even if you don't write an, a, a review, if you could give us a five-star review, like hit the five-star button and that's it, that's a big a big help as well. You know, any of those things will help us reach audiences. Uh, I want to uh, kind of, before we get started, I have a little bit of a request, if, see if there's anybody out there uh, we're part of the StarQuest uh, production network, SQPN. We have a lot of shows that we're doing. We have a lot of new shows, and the workload is increasing. And we're a volunteer, mostly volunteer organization. I'm the I'm, a- I'm almost a paid... all almost all volunteer. You're the only exception, right? I'm I'm the one paid person to spend all my time doing this, but everybody else is volunteer, and we're reaching our limit of how much we can do, how much we can add on. Uh, to the workload for the people who are involved. And so we're looking for new people who might want to get involved behind the scenes, uh, even if in one thing we're looking for in particular is someone who can do audio editing. Um, if you have experience with audition or logic or there's a third big one, uh, it escapes me. I, I keep wanting to say premiere, but it starts with a P. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know what it is, uh, folks. If, you, if you're into audio, you know which one I'm talking about. Um, and if you have experience editing audio, you know what compression is. You know what an audio expander does. That sort of stuff. An EQ. We're looking for some help. It's not. It won't take you very long, especially if you have any experience. One show you could edit in about half an hour, probably. 
so we're we're looking for some folks to give us some help doing some editing of shows. And if you are one of those people, you can send an email to help at sqpn.com and let me know. We can start a conversation about um, what could be possible. Could, yeah, what, what we could do. So <clears throat> all the preliminaries done. Let's talk about this episode. Now, uh, Jimmy, uh, we kind of teased the fact that we that Father Corey's going to be sorry he missed this conversation with us because I think we both agree this might be the best episode of Discovery, not even just this season overall. Is that possible? Maybe just this season. I would say it's definitely the best episode of this season. Whether I'd say it's the best episode overall, I'd have to go back and rewatch the first season. But I think it's definitely the best episode this season. I certainly enjoyed it the most. We're finally getting payoff on threads that they set up as long as seven episodes ago, and they start to pay off multiple threads. So I really enjoyed it just for, you know, the dramatic reasons. But also, I really enjoyed the fact that they tied it in so closely to the original series and to the original pilot for the original series. They actually start the episode in the cold open and, the you know, previously on Star Trek Discovery. They they uh, they show us footage from the original Star Trek pilot, The Cage. So we get to see Leonard Nimoy. We get to see Jeffrey Hunter. We get to see the blue singing Chinese money plants. Uh, <laughs> we get to see Spock smile. Um, mm-hmm. So the issue of his emotional development is on the table. Uh, we get to see Vina and the, ori- the original Vina, the original Telosians. And with all of that, um, what the creators of Star Trek Discovery are doing is saying what you're about to see is a continuation of that. And since that has been established as canon for a long time and part of the prime timeline, they're telling us what you're seeing in Star Trek Discovery is is canon and it's a continuation of the prime timeline. For contractual reasons, they may have to present it somewhat differently visually, but the fact they show us like the money plant and then here's the new version of the money plant. It's like, OK, we're just up- upgrading the graphics, guys. We're not saying it's a different universe. We're not saying it's a different timeline. And so I think this will resolve a lot of the or at least has the potential for many fans to resolve a lot of the concerns they've had about is this canon or not? Is this the prime timeline or not? The, the Other than breaking the fourth wall. And saying, guys, this is the prime timeline. There's <laughs> there's there's no other way for uh, them to communicate in the show that, yes, this is we take the original timeline very and its continuity very seriously and and we're honoring it. And and this is how we're linking up to it. So some of the things that have we've you know done differently in this series are not meant to be in conflict with it it's always been our plan to sync up the two and now you're seeing that happening i did i did love the way that they cut they they cut the edited that that teaser tra- you know that teaser part the uh, the cold yeah. open mm-hmm. um where it was very much a modern energy 21st century energy to it uh but with the original footage um it looked great they 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 did not do pan and scan they did we did have the black bars on the screen mm-hmm. um it was 4 by 3 but it was but it just looked great. Felt it was so cool. It was um, had the original Alexander Courage theme music. Uh, it was it was thoroughly Star Trek, of course, yeah. because it was the original. Um, and then it, it also clarified for me what that the the Chinese blue Chinese money plant is actually making noise. 
because it had always been an open question to me, is that sound that we hear, that kind of whistling, throbbing sound, is that diegetic or non-diegetic? Um, you know, is it are we meant to understand the characters are hearing this or or is this just something they're giving us as the audience? And and they make it explicit here because Michael pinches the plant and the sound goes off and she lets it go and it starts singing again. And then later, uh, Giorgio says, yeah, I wiped the Telosians and their stupid singing plants <laughs> off the face of the planet <laughs> yes. uh, in you my know, I, universe. Yeah, yes. That was one of the things I noticed about this is throughout this episode is they injected a lot of the atmospheric um, elements from the original cage, mm -hmm. the cage into this episode. So the a lot of not even not just the the plants, but anytime on the surface, there were a lot of like little sounds that just sounded like the original episode. If you if mm -hmm. you weren't really listening for it, you might have missed it. But overall, it creates a sort of a subliminal sense of this is the same place. Yeah, they also did that with the color scheme for Talos 4, because originally Talos 4 in the original series, it has a kind of green sky, kind of stormy looking green sky. And they brought back that green lighting for this episode as well. It's It looks more realistic here uh, because we have improved special effects, but they're honoring that. And I liked I've commented on how I like what they've done this season with planetary color schemes, like with Kaminar where they take an earthly environment, but then tweak the colors enough that it looks a little exotic. And they did that here with Talos 4, also making it have this green, greenish sky and greenish hue to things. Of course, it's um, they film it outdoors in a rock quarry uh, as opposed to on a soundstage. Uh, you get a little differences. But uh, we kind of skipped ahead a little bit. I want to kind of go back to the beginning and talk about, um, say, Pike's uh, uh, open. So we we're, again, we're, we're going back to the personal log of the opening there's still not a captain's log but we have a personal log uh and pike and a, and a star date this time yes a star date which again places us in the context of uh star trek if you follow star dates yeah uh, but it's there and unfortunately the they they have they are continuing the original series tradition of being fast and loose with the sequence of star dates um, because originally there was no real defined scheme to how the star dates work, except they kind of got an extra number on the front for every season. And since this is early and they don't want to use zero, although they could, they gave us 1532.9, which actually is later than in sequence than the star date of the second pilot, which is set several years after this. But then that's it's par for the course with the original series. The star dates were all messed up anyway. They didn't introduce a coherent ordering system to them until the next generation era. Yeah, they, they, they tried to claim early on that it was um, star date was both time and location dependent. But <laughs> yeah, that was, as <laughs> if. Yeah, you get, that's a lot of data in, in four digits and then a dot and a digit. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, there, I, I I've actually done a lot of work on star dates. In fact, I once when I met Gene Roddenberry, he gave me his card because of a theory I had about star dates, which was later superseded by the next gen era. But I think they just need to announce the existence of star centuries, and it's like okay, that's why you have this discontinuity in the numbers. Um, at a certain point, it lets you use earlier dates, lower numbers for earlier dates, and then. And then they start growing again at some point. And they're, we're just not mentioning that we're in a new star century. Right, right. So it's, it's like, like I could I could say we're in this is the year 19 
meaning yes. 2019. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just like people used to do before the turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, Pike's um, log, he, said, he basically says, um, still no word from Burnham. Um, she's still looking for Spock. Uh, it pains me to think the worst of any Starfleet div- division, but I do hope she locates him before Section 31 does, which is an interesting admission. I mean, we, we're supposed to know that Section 31 is kind of shady, uh, but, but you know, it's, it, he's, Pike is, Pike is, is, is not the cowboy that Kirk was. We've talked about before. Kirk, uh, Pike is the Boy Scout, rule follower, the man, uh, you know, a man of the organization. And for him to start expressing these sorts of doubts about an official part of the organization is shows some you know he's yeah. a company man and he's he's a 23rd century jonathan archer yes right that's a good way to put it so um then we have a uh, starfleet command a bunch of admirals consulting with both leland and giorgio on the uh section 31 ship and you know, oh, we that see Vulcan giorgio admiral is like oh snap <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and we see giorgio sort of take control of this of this mission from Leland, it's very obvious, and yeah. uh, and the and the admirals like are totally go with it. Like, yeah, yeah the Vul- she knows the Vulcan. The Vulcan admiral asks a question, and and Leland starts to answer. It's like, I'm sorry, I was asking Captain Giorgio. <laughs> yes, ouch. <laughs> that's a that's like the worst staff meeting ever. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and so Giorgio gives them advice, says, you know, hey, uh, tell Pike to stay where he is with Discovery. Don't tell them uh, how we're looking for Burnham. But keep an eye on him so that he's, uh, uh, you know, because she'll obviously contact them. And that's when we'll know where she is. Um, and then uh, then she contacts. And, and how they're how they're looking for Spock has Section 31 is there. They know he needs medical attention. So they're looking for off planet, meaning off Vulcan medical facilities. So like hospitals that would treat Vulcans. Right. Right. Exactly. And then um, uh, Giorgio then contacts Pike. And Tyler and tells and tells them about Burnham's quote unquote mutiny, which she helped. And this, but this happens after she told the admirals that Pike and Tyler shouldn't be told, right? Mm, she well, I didn't get from the original from the original conversation that they weren't to be told that Spock had escaped, just that they were to stay here. And um and and examine parts of the probe from the future that got modified. So they're they're that's their mission is to try to learn more about this probe and why it accessed their computers and stuff. Um, I think they kind of have to. I think she kind of has to tell them about the escape because she knows Burnham may contact them, and so she needs to say if Burnham contacts you, I need to know immediately. So um, is is she kind of betraying Burnham at this point then? No, I think it's just part of her larger plan. Okay. Because that's the thing I keep looking for is when does Giorgio betray Burnham? Because she has said, I have never said anything to betray you. I've never undermined you. I've never lied to you. I don't think she does. Not anytime soon. I think that I think that the more dramatically interesting choice as a writer is for them to have her be this shady character that is not trusted by Burnham and Pike, but that ultimately is going to be able to say, guys, I was a square dealer with you. That's much more interesting than as a just speaking as a writer than a a betrayal plot here. That's true. I I would prefer that myself because, yeah, you're right. It creates 
these much more interesting dynamics between the characters if if she could always say i have never lied to you and yeah yet- now maybe maybe yeah. there'll be a future plot line where she does but only after she's earned their trust right and and that's a and that would be a huge capital spend in a sense of of character capital to to do that you that should not be ever be done lightly What's what's I find interesting is now that um now that we've had Darmak and Jalad at Tanagra and Tyler and Pike are getting along much better. Yes. Tyler is betraying Section 31. He does it twice in this episode where he gives Pike information um and tells or an advice that's basically don't go looking for Burnham. Let her trust her to do this, because if we go looking for Burnham, they're looking at us. They're going to find Burnham. So he's actually working to keep Spock and Burnham away from Section 31. And then later, <clears throat> after he has been framed for something he didn't do, um, he again tells Pike, if you don't believe me about anything else, believe me, they will track us. So take that into account in whatever you do. And so he's actually he's and he's got ambivalence about Section 31. And um, Pike even calls him on it, says, if you don't trust him, why are you working for him? And he says, well, they work in gray zones and I can do some good there. But he admits he's not fully on board with Section 31. And his personal allegiances still, you know, to to uh, Burnham, which is something that uh, Pike calls him on it in this scene, which, you know, he's like. I, you know, I usually don't want to get into people's private business, but now I need to know what is your relationship with Burnham? Where does your where do your loyalties lie with her and her with you? And he kind of drags it out of him a little bit uh, to, to, and, and he you know, tells him basically he's still in love with her. He doesn't think she's in love with him, but that there's still some connection there, perhaps. Which is uh, uh, and, and Pike is concerned that Tyler's feelings could get could become a problem during the mission that he might get confused between his duty and his feelings for uh Burnham and that that's that's a, a concern it's a, sort of a trope but it's it's a valid it's a valid character arc meanwhile uh Burnham is in in the shuttle with Spock and th- now we get that scene that we were we we said we should have had in the last episode which is as soon as Burnham enters Talos 4 into the computer it should have popped up with the warning this is a forbidden planet um, and it didn't last episode, but this episode and it doesn't even have Walter Pigeon on it <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or uh, Robbie the robot. Uh, but it does have the warning here when it briefs her on it. And, you know, this is a forbidden zone. We're not allowed to go there. Now, it doesn't mention General Order 7. It just says travel in the Talos system is prohibited by Starfleet. And they use that language both times, because when Discovery starts to go there, they get the same warning. Um, I, I, I want to give you credit, Dom, because last episode, when we talked about this, you suggested that maybe general order seven hasn't been created yet and that that's a future thing. Um, and so I, that seems to be borne out here. Um, I had done some further checking because I, I had mentioned, I'd done some research on the general orders and it was like number four that mentions the death penalty. Actually, they're inconsistent. Um, they, if you go to Memory Alpha's page on the General Orders, uh, it talks about twice, both in connection with General Order 4 and General Order 7, which is the Talos 4 one, 
um, they they say it's the only death penalty on the books. And so they're kind of inconsistent about it. One way that it's been harmonized is um, that it, it, like there's a death penalty for just one thing, treason. But going to Talos four is construed as treason. Um, so so that's one way of harmonizing them. There are others, too, but they the fact that they don't mention a death penalty in this episode is also or General Order seven is would support your hypothesis, Don, that General Adam, that uh, General Order seven hasn't yet been created. Right. And um, I, I was thinking that maybe as a result of this, these events that might end up being where, what creates it. And we'll see if we end up back at Talos 4 at some point in this season or, or, or something like that. Um, or in a future uh, season, we, we get another encounter here. Like, I mean, that's possible, too. Yeah. So, uh, oh, by the way, also, Dom, you had asked last episode, we talked a little bit about where time Pike is in his personal timeline. And we know it's after Talos 4. But before his accident that leads him to being in a wheelchair and I went back as prep for this episode, I, I rewatched the menagerie and part of the parts of the cage uh, just to refresh my memory of things. And they establish in the menagerie that um, that he visited Talos for 13 years ago and that his um, his accident that put him in the wheelchair. He be, he later became fleet captain, which he is not at this time. And then he was on a training mission, saving cadets from an accident. And that's what put him in the wheelchair. And that was just a few months before the menagerie. Um, also, it brought back to me, you know, people have talked about how the current actor playing Pike Anson Mount in discovery looks kind of like Jeffrey Hunter. And he does a little bit, um, but Jeffrey Hunter is like uh, he's, he's got black hair in the original pilot and and Anson Mount doesn't have black hair here. It's more blonde. And that actually syncs up with the second actor to play Captain Pike, Sean Kenny, who was in the wheelchair, because it always struck me. I mean, this guy has a totally different hair color than what we saw in the cage. And so with Anson Mount, they're kind of blending aspects of the two original actors to play Pike. That's true. I mean, I mean, I, I always sort of headcanoned it as the accident somehow yeah, uh, changed, changed his, his hair color. <laughs> color. But, you know, if if that's possible. Um, it, so that would mean so Enterprise, the first season of uh, the, the original series is what they said is about 10 years to the future from events of discovery. So that means that Talos, the original Talos for the, the cage events are probably about three years in the past from Pike at this point. Yeah, something like that. About, yeah, somewhere, which, which gives a certain sort of um, immediacy to Pike's recollections and reactions to, as we'll see coming up, Vina and the Talosians. So it's sort of a, it's still, it would still be sort of raw uh, there, uh, that, that wound from that. So that'll be, that's interesting to see. But before we get to that, I want to talk about um, Spock and Burnham as they get to Talos. That scene, which was pretty, I think it was pretty yeah. cool. The effects were, were cool. They come out of warp, and there's they're on the event horizon of a black hole. Well, they're at, they're not the event horizon because then they oh, get yeah. sucked in. They're right, at the right, accretion right. disk, and I that's, as soon as right. I saw it, it's like that's a massive accretion disk, <laughs> and 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 uh, it turns out it's an illusion 
that the Talosians are using as protection of their location. And Spock realizes that's what it is and pilots them down anyway. Oh, it kind of has to shove Burnham out of the way a couple times, but uh, he, he gets them through the illusion and they can see the planet then. That was a pretty cool uh, a little uh, battle between them where he's barely coherent, but yet knows what has to do. He can't communicate with her, but yet he kind of pushes her out of the way. One of the things that I thought was interesting is the computer, what they hear is they hear the computer voice saying structural failure in five seconds as they get closer in on the accretion disk. And and so the actual computer, since it doesn't have a brain, is not saying that that is that audio is part of the illusion. They're experiencing it. And it goes to something that was said in the cage, which is the and that we actually saw in the cage, which is the Telosians can make you push controls, you know, that that you don't realize what you're doing. And we saw that in the cage when they beam down just two women out of a six person party. Uh, you know, somehow the Telosians had made the transporter control guys just beam down those two women. And and here we get kind of a character's perspective on what that's like where you're like hearing audio telling you things that the computer doesn't actually believe. Right, right. Because the computer can't be tricked by an illusion. The computer would, would you know, knows what's going on. So it, yeah. every, everything it's they the, experience. The computer is seeing a planet down there. Right, right. Uh, so uh, then we go to the open um, uh, with, although Burnham, Burnham says uh, the uh, we're on the other side of the looking glass now, which is you know, related to the whole Alice in Wonderland um uh, theme. theme that we get going throughout this season. So after the open uh, the opening credits, we have uh, Stamets and uh, Hugh Culber uh, walking through the corridors of Discovery. And and Hugh- as soon as I saw this, I said Culber is not fitting in well with his return to life. There is major right. drama ahead on this. He is uh, very acting very strangely, um, especially when he sees Tyler, who if we remember um, as Volk killed Hugh Culber. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that, also Stamets is like really trying. He's really trying way hard to 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 please uh, Culber and to get things back to normal between the two of them. And it's not working. And he's just getting de- he's sensing that and he's getting desperate. Yes. Yes. I mean, I can I can imagine just from a human standpoint, just this like, you know, it, and this happens to people that um they're they're married. They have uh, their spouse has a uh, traumatic brain injury, say, um, which causes a like a personality change or or other things like that. Um, and that person is no longer the same person. Doesn't feel about you the same way. And the you know, or or in some ways, it's like uh, people who you know a loved one is suffering from Alzheimer's disease or one of these other things where you still have feelings for this person, but they don't have them for you anymore and just having to deal with that or even on a lesser scale um when my wife was dying you know it was such a traumatic experience for the both of us there were moments where i was doing everything i could to to be comforting to her and i was overdoing it and and she had to indicate you know you know i know that i know you love me but that's right. not helping at the moment right right and it- uh, so I have to say, you know, the w- well done on the part of the of the folks involved here. And in, I think it was sensitively done here uh, in, 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 in showing 
what that's like. Um, and and as, and 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 I'm I'm happy that Hugh didn't just come back from the dead and just reintegrate, put on the uh, dark uniform, he's back in sickbay. That which which is frankly what they pro- would have done in the original series, or or of uh, almost any prior series except Deep Space Nine. Right, exactly. Um, the, they've decided to you know show the effects and show the you know what you have what someone would deal with, and I, and I have to say a uh, good job on that. So uh, back on the bridge, uh, we have Pike. You know, he's he's looking to them, to them to figure out what that probe that got modified in the you know by the by the future people and sent back what it might have been doing, what it might have information might have got. Um, I love the fact that Arium, Commander Arium, who the cyber the cyborg who's got the virus in her, says the probe used multiple SQL injections when it's actually, they're using I, I SQL the, the 23rd century and they're still using SQL really <laughs> I had to laugh that they're still using SQL databases uh, a couple hundred years from now that that was that was kind of funny um yeah that's uh I, I applaud the writers for trying to be accurate but uh, yeah it's it doesn't quite yeah, work there. So for people who aren't <laughs> database geeks, SQL is a 20th century, you know, thing yeah, that 20th. is very, <laughs> yeah. very unlikely they're going to be using in, in the 23rd century. But it was interesting. It's 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 a, it's a little bit like saying, um, you know, I, I checked the, the ship's music library and we've got some CDs by this artist. <laughs> right, it's like, right. really? You've got CDs? Or uh, I'm, uh, my website is, isn't working. I've, I've checked the uh, the Gutenberg Press, and it's uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, SQL is basically the 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 database that runs the entire internet. Almost every database is a SQL database. So I mean, it's it's prolific, but yeah, it but it it's will, now. Yeah, it'll be replaced in a, by then. That's for certain. Yeah. Um, and, and also here, we don't necessarily want to believe Arium when she says that she's found no corrupt files because she is herself corrupted. Exactly. And She's, that may be why they've pulled in a ton of stuff from the shuttle, but not been able to pro- find any parts of the probe that blew up, too. Right. I mean, this is your 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 point of failure in this system is the uh, is the officer who's been pretty much co-opted by the this alien entity of some sort. Uh, she's you know, so that in some ways it's like the Telosians. You can't trust anything she sees or does or says. So there's a there's there's a kind of analog between these two plot lines here in the in this episode. So uh, ba- back to Talos four, we get um, you know she the Burnham goes out to take a look around, uh, and Vina shows up, and yeah. uh, she recognizes Spock. Um, again, I think they did a good job of of finding an actress who will remind us of Vina and who embodies her to a lot of a lot of extent. I mean, pro- probably, I mean. The, Acting styles have changed, and so mm-hmm. this actress acts differently, uh, literally, figuratively, than the original actress in that role. But yet, it's still recognizably this character that she's playing, and I think that that was well done. Um, and then we also get a view of the the Telosians re- reimagined, um, uh, also well done. I mean, in the original series, they had the uh, the giant head prosthetic with the air bladders to show like i actually liked the pulsing air bladders to represent their blood veins i mean we see a little head pulsing here but it's much more subtle i like the it's just right under the skin you pl- prick it and this guy's gonna bleed out <laughs> yes and, well and and it was a good indicator in the original uh, pilot that 
you know, when they were using their power, you know, versus yeah. when they weren't. And uh, so we still, like you said, there's, there's still some of that, but it's a lot more subtle. Also, the Telosians this time are less androgynous. Um, here in this episode, they're actually credited in the, if you watch with the closed captions, as male Telosian and female Telosian. In the original cage, they were androgynous and you had women, but playing a kind of male part. They were made to look up, to look like males, kind of. So they were androgynous. You had this weird mix of the sexes. You didn't know what they were. Right, exactly. They were very alien in that in that sense. Um, we're told that Spock is experiencing time as a fluid rather than a linear construct, and conventional logic has not helped him deal with it uh, because of his encounter with um, with the Red Angel, a, a mind meld. In, in, in effect, we'll actually we'll 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 get we'll, they'll show us that in a minute. But that that's what they say at the, at the beginning. And I'm thinking, what does that mean that he's experiencing time as a fluid rather than a linear construct? Well, it, I think it's pretty clear we know what our ordinary experience of time is, and it's linear. But I would assume that means – I don't know exactly what it means to experience <laughs> it as fluid. I assume yeah. it means it's jumbled somehow for him. Right. Um, but when I sit down and think about it, I'm going, how does it get jumbled? In what way? Um, and I don't, I don't know – I don't think they even necessarily know what they mean by that. They just want us to understand Spock is injured. I can make up stuff in headcanon like, okay, he's lost track of the, his brain has lost track of the ability to properly encode time and he's having intrusive flashbacks or something like that. But they haven't done a really that are jumbling his sense of, of causality and what's happening in what order, but they haven't done anything to really establish that. It would be an interesting thing if if they went there and explained it. If if what he's experiencing is, I don't know which moments in my are are memory and which are current experience. So my memories are are, are I'm experiencing them out of sequence at as if they were happening now. In and and that's what they, that would be an interesting exploration, especially if they could show it to the viewer somehow. But uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. They don't they don't go into it. But by the way, speaking of time issues, I thought I'd comment on something about Vina because they mention, and I think it's even in the cold open for this episode, one of the older Telosian or one of the older he's a he's an illusion created by the Telosians, but he's thought to be one of the crew of uh, the Columbia, the ship that originally crashed on on Talos Four, um, and he says to um, the Enterprise crew that Vina was born just as was barely born when we crashed and um and that was 18 years ago and so you might say well why does vena in this episode of discovery then say i was a member of their crew if she was just barely born one option would be that the um that she that that the Columbia had a really long voyage. It was like a generation ship or something. So when they say barely born, they mean she was a young person, but not that she was born like minutes or days before the crash. Um, the problem with that and there, that you could even say that's consistent with a line in the cage where one of the crewmen says, you won't believe how fast we can get back. The warp barrier has been broken which would suggest warp drive has just become a thing. But that's not consistent with everything else we know about the history of warp drive. 
So, um, so my guess is what we're really meant to understand, because in the cage, number one says to Vina, there was a an adult crewman on the on the rolls of the Columbia named Vina. Let's add 18 years to her age at the time and get yours. And so my thought is the real explanation is the old guy illusion is lying to the Enterprise crew to explain why Vina looks so young because they want her to be young to be attractive to Pike. And so they need to present her as young and therefore they need an explanation of why she looks so young. Oh, she was just born right before we crashed. But that's just a lie. And so so what we have in this episode is Venus telling the truth. I was a member of the Columbia crew. Right. And I think that, that I always kind of figured that that's exactly what was was saying when when uh, number one said, uh, you know, that you're 18 years old. And it's kind of it's kind of a funny thing. Like um, it sort of goes at the uh, the the adult male like, oh, you know, because Pike would have been mid 30s, at least probably a little yeah. older than that. And so they present to him an 18 year old young woman as opposed to a, a mid 30s woman of the same age. And therefore, he'd be all that more attracted to her. It sort of doesn't say well, a lot of good things about men. It, it doesn't. But men are biologically and evolutionarily programmed to respond to women who are in their prime fertile years. And that skews younger. And that's actually the context in which number one brings this up, because they're talking about the fact that Telosians want to set up an Adam and Eve breeding program uh, with Pike as Adam. And and Vina is resenting the appearance of number one and 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 the yeoman. And it's and and uh, number one is like, OK, let's think about how many children you could actually have at your age. That's the, <laughs> right. that's the subtext of this. Right. Right. Of course, really, if you wanted to set up a new breeding population of humans, you don't want just one woman. Right. You would want all three. It, right, a- right. And more. <laughs> we, we should not go too far down that road. No, I'm just speaking, <laughs> you know, I'm no, not, no, saying, not yes. saying this is moral, but if you if you were trying to do this. If you're aliens trying to do this, the aliens would not presumably be constrained by human monogamy morality. Zookeepers would have yeah. more than one of each kind of of the females of it, which it's a whole nother discussion about the Noah's Ark. But that's another that's another time. <laughs> so uh, so the Telosians agree to fix Spock's uh, problem. Apparently, they it's it's easy peasy for them to go into his head and fix things. But at a price. Uh, but they have a price. Uh, they they have the worst HMO ever. Um, <laughs> they, they worst want to... medical privacy policy ever. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I mean, sometimes when I have to deal with my insurance company, I think it is they want me to experience the worst thing in my life ever. Uh, they they ask they, as a price. They want to experience the conflict between Burnham and Spock uh, firsthand. So for them to relive it, and 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 this is goes back again to the cage. This is. This is the currency. This is the the even more more so almost like the food that they they live on uh, mentally because they they have no more entertainment and they're 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 like such a decadent culture that all they have left is reliving the memories and experiences of of the of you know they've all of lived the the, their own experiences so they cap mm-hmm. the, capture people to live theirs right um, and. Uh, 
And, you know, and they not only want to know what Burnham did, they want Spock to re-experience this too, so they can see Spock's reaction to it emotionally and view it all from his perspective as well. Right. In fact, Burnham comes out and says, you want to experience our pain? Why? And at which point I yelled out, to advance the plot, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we need character pain to, to, to advance the plot. Uh, it, because that's been part of the story is... What happened uh, to, I, between them? I like the fact she calls him on it and says, "Is why do you want this? Is this your entertainment? And they, they say, it's how we survive. And she says, survive some other way. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's similar to uh, the original Pike's reaction. I mean, his anger and um, his his rejection of their uh, of, of their deal and and how they were so put you know, set back by that. Like they had never, none of their captains had ever reacted in such a, a way to their offer. And, and so Burnham sort of continues that. That's like what Pike had done. And so we start off by you. So they agree. And so they, but they, they first, they have to experience Spock's first angel sighting, which was when uh, they were children and Michael ran away from Sarek's home, Sarek and, and Amanda's home. Um, after the, um, the logic extremists had a, had attacked them, put them in danger, and so she ran away. And the angel gave young Spock a premonition of her death. She was um, going to be killed by a Vulcan iguana monster. <laughs> yes, is that was that the no? It's I, not a Lamatya. Yeah. yeah, no, no. I, I, I was actually going to say a crate dragon, but that's Star Wars. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I, there's a there's a there's there is another one, but I forget it what it is now. But yes, some like Vulcan is just a. That's a rough planet to live on. I got to tell you. I mean, Earth has nothing on Vulcan. Um, but but uh, yeah, it was a it was a cool uh, alien monster creature uh, chasing her. Um, so it gives her this it gives him this premonition, and he shows him where she can be found, and saves her. Um, and then years later, he gets another premonition, and this is the one we saw in the the what was was it the season finale last year? No, it was it was the season premiere. Season this opener. Year. Yeah, the of uh, when Burnham was in Spock's quarters and it guided him to a remote planet and showed him the end of the galaxy and the universe through a mind meld uh, from a series of planet killer weapons, I guess. Somebody's somebody's going to launch a bunch of these planet killer weapons and, and destroy all life in the galaxy because yeah. stakes and, can't and be small. And the way it showed him was through this mind meld. He reaches out to the red alien and to the red angel and starts a mind meld. He says, my mind to your mind. And then in the reverse angle shot, we see Michael Burnham saying my thoughts to your thoughts, which is the next line of the mind meld. And so this is them basically telling the audience, unless they totally welch out on this, this is them confirming my proposal from a couple episodes ago. The Red Angel is Michael Burnham. This is Michael Burnham as a time traveler. And and because there's no other reason for us to see her giving that line. Um, and it would and once they've done it, it would be Welshing if they explain it away some other way. In terms in 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 terms, I mean, they could do it. I can think of ways they could do it, but it would be it would be backpedaling. Um, and but Spock doesn't get that this is Michael Burnham. He just gets it's a human and he infers that it's a human from the future based on the technology. 
So we know that it's a human, it's female by body form, and we have a reverse angle shot of Michael Burnham completing the mind meld with Spock. On the surface level of this episode, I think we're to understand that Burnham is saying that line because she's reliving the experience through Spock's eyes. That would be how to do it, but... Right, right. But the fact that they're showing it is a clear, you know, we're, we're laying our cards on the table, or it should be. So... Um, so we switch back to, um, Hugh and Stamets in their quarters. And this is, we have this confrontational moment where Hugh says, you know, his, my senses and my feelings don't connect with my memories. I don't feel anything for you anymore. And he's angry. He's being asked to pick up where they left off and doesn't know why he's angry. And that sort of storms out. And that's just this very sad moment (laughs) between them. Um. Meanwhile, Tyler wants Pike to stop looking for Burnham and Spock, because, as you said, he's only going to lead Section 31 to them. And then, meanwhile, Saru tells Pike that someone is transmitting large amounts of data from the ship, which we know as the audience must be Arium. Arium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fulfilling the probe's mission of getting data out of from Discovery. Um, so... So that's that's pretty much what happens back on Discovery at this point. And then we switch back to Burnham and Spock, and she asks what the Red Angel is and, and has to defend. I love this moment where she has to sort of defend her questioning as a rhetorical question to Spock. And he, and he ends with, is there a better question in your arsenal? And she says, yeah, do you think the beard is working? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a great repartee. He, he is really, I have in my notes, uh, Spock is really cold to Michael here. I mean, he's being Vulcan passive aggressive to the max. You know what? I think I hate to do this, but I'm going to I'm going to do it because we're all going to do it. If Leonard Nimoy was 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 here now, he wouldn't be playing it angry. He'd be playing it matter of fact because Spock was always sort of cold and emotional. But matter of fact, like other people's emotional outbursts, he would just greet with a raised eyebrow and sort of. Well, that's very odd uh, for you to to do that. You know, he said, that's not logical. Uh, you know, but it would be it'd be cold, but matter of fact. Whereas this Spock is, plays it, this actor plays Spock much more like suppressed anger, and and that's not inconsistent with what we've seen with Vulcans before, and it's also not inconsistent with the fact that the, that Spock is not yet the Leonard Nimoy version that we're familiar with. That's I think they showed his smile. In the where he touches the Chinese money plant in the cold open deliberately to tell us this is not the mature Spock. And later on in this episode, we he smiles get, again and, yeah. and Pike comments on it and he acknowledges right. it and says, is that a smile I see on your face? Yes, it is. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I, know, I can't help but just compare him to the definitive Spock. And yeah, that's just the way it is. Uh, we, we, we all have our favorites. Um, he, he says that he brought Burnham to Talos. Because he needed someone who could give context to his timeline, which she says, do you mean family? Yeah. (laughs) And he says, interesting you would say that, which we find out in a minute. Yes. Um, But he does confirm that the Red Angel was human and that there was loneliness and desperation in this person. Mind meld. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which, is this a Michael Burnham years later after having been separated in time from everyone and coming back in time? An older Michael Burnham, maybe. Maybe, but I think it's a Michael Burnham we're going to see within the next seven episodes. Uh, that's yeah, possibly, yeah, yeah. They um, need to pay this off this season. I mean, the way this show is working, 
they have an overarching season plot that needs to be resolved by the end of the season. What I'm thinking is that Bur- Burnham gets separated from everyone and spends decades alone and then mm-hmm. comes back. It could be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think um and I still think I think I agree. I still I still think we need to pay off the Calypso short track connection as well that maybe there's uh, although that's a thousand years in the future, I don't know. I yeah. just feel they, like they, they might they might not on that one. Yeah. The time travel thing makes that 500 1000 not as uh is a much of a barrier. Yeah. Uh, the 500 Also, uh, Michael gets to see what Spock what happened with Spock in the hospital and indeed he doesn't kill anybody. He neck pinches a person and slugs a couple of others. Um they cuz they come in and one kills them. I don't did, did, nobody got killed in that episode in that scene that I saw. Not, not in that scene, but the implications left that I mean cuz if they're going to claim that Spock killed a doctor and and guards to escape, mm-hmm. that then, then, then somebody has to be dead somewhere. My, I, Presum- I get the implication okay, I that they I actually, actually hadn't thought it through that far. Uh, they section thirty one may have killed them. That's true, or they may have just lied. And I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking at this at the moment. I mean, they hypothetically they could have witness protectioned them or issued false names and say he killed these people. And hey, you the real people, you are not to contradict us under severe penalties. Possible, although the Occam's razor. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> they just kill somebody. Yeah. But you, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were gonna say, but we he well, seems stun they, them. They, yeah, they come in and they tell Spock about the red, the red signals that have appeared, and they they know that they're the same ones that he's predicted, and they want to know: Have you heard of these in the past or something? You know, you're a science officer. Maybe you heard about these in your research at some point in the past. And he's like, no, dudes, I'm remembering the future. You need to figure out why. And <laughs> right. when when they're not um, will. And then they tell him Section 31 is coming to take you to a more specialized facility where they can help you. That's when he realizes this is not going to go well. And he does the nerve pinch and starts slugging people. And escapes. And then he has this extra catty moment with Michael Burnham where she's going, dude, you didn't kill anyone. And and he's like, yeah, duh. I see you still don't have confidence in my character. And it's like, well, <laughs> well, guy, you are in a mental hospital, OK? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were, you were not in your right mind. And, you know, Starfleet how did do, say that you killed somebody. How, how do I know this isn't a false memory fantasy you're making up for yourself to deal with your guilt? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, speaking of dealing with guilt, we, we jump back to discovery and Hugh shows up in the, uh, mess hall and picks conf- a fight with Tyler, <laughs> right. And demands to see Vok and, uh, Saru lets them fight it out. Mm-hmm. And, and I love the fact that they, they don't let him get, get away with this. Like, um, he thought it yeah. was a necessary catharsis, um, and, and says Starfleet manual re- offers no regulatory guidelines for interactions between humans with Klingons grafted to their bones and a ship's doctor returned from the dead. I know. Saru gets the best line of the episode. That's awesome. <laughs> and then, uh, and I found it interesting that neither Tyler nor Culber know who they are anymore. Yeah. They're both men uh, set adrift from their identities. That's, that's how I, I like the line they use at the end of the fight, because Culber is, as a result of coming back, he feels emotionally discouraged. This is, by the way, a, a real psychological phenomenon where people, um, have a traumatic event and they feel like nothing feels right anymore. I don't know who I am. This is it's dissociation. And 
Um, and so he's experiencing that and he's a doctor, so we ought to know what this is. Um, but he's experiencing it and he picks the fight with, uh, with, uh, Tyler to try to get some closure and he's complaining. And this is all understandable. If you're, if someone had killed you and you're, you've had this, I mean, I, this is emotionally believable that you would do this. And he, he's, he's, so he's, he's beating on Tyler and he's like, I don't even know who I am anymore. That's his central complaint. And Tyler, uh, Tyler's response, who do you think you're talking to? Right. Exactly. Because he's in exactly the same situation, given that he was Voke. And the fight ends at that point. And because they've realized we're both dealing with the same issue. Right. Exactly. Uh, and then later on, we'll, we'll go away and come back to this. But the, the mess hall where the, that's where Hugh tells Stamets to move on without him, that he's leaving him, you know, breaking yeah. up with him, whatever. Um, I do like actually it's kind of a little thing. I like the little robots that come in to clean up the mess. Yeah. I, I, I had a note about the, the mess cleanup drones. It's like, yeah, <laughs> your mom in the twenty third century, your mom is not gonna be telling you to pick up your room. The drones are gonna do it for you. <laughs> right. I mean every time that like the again in the short track where uh where Tilly and the uh, and the alien like totally mess the mess hall, I'm like how does that mess hall get clean before everybody notices? Well, that's how the the little robots yep. do it. We have Roombas now. It's, they're <laughs> going to be more advanced in the future. <laughs> right. So Pike, meanwhile, Boy Scout rule follower Pike tells Saru later on, this is a one time thing where we conflicts will be settled via the uniform code of conduct. Yeah. Uh, and and we, he notes that that you probably wouldn't have done this before your recent Varharai. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting to see the continued evolution of Saru to frankly, I think a more interesting character. Honestly, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't I, I wasn't a huge fan of Saru before. I I'm finding this new Saru to be much more interesting. I I was a fan of Saru before, and I like what they've done with him. But I because it adds a new layer to his character. I don't want to see them overplaying it, though. Right, right. I I think there was a tendency in the first season, especially for them to overplay the fear part of Saru. Um, which I th- think would make him a terrible first officer, frankly, uh, because he would be so often motivated by fear in his advice. Whereas now I think it's it, it's more balanced and should stay balanced as opposed to getting over over the top in the other direction. Uh, so we get to this big key scene of Pike first getting a vision of Vina, which is a really yeah. interesting moment between them where and he's still yeah. carrying a, a torch for her. Yeah, well, she said earlier, in some ways, he never left Talos for and 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 what we're meant to understand by that is he's still mentally, emotionally plugged into things on Talos for, which indeed he is. And he'll end up there. And as a result of the menagerie. But there's another sense in which he also, in some ways, never left Talos for. Which comes out because when Vina appears to him in private, he freaks out and she says, I'm not used to you being afraid of me. And he says, used to me. And what she's referring to is the is the fact that she has been living the last however many years in having intense fantasies with augmented by Telosian illusions about him. Right. She's been living and, with an illusion of him. Yeah. And she says, we've spent a lifetime together. And 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 he actually knew this because at the end of the cage, he Pike is given a vision of her going underground again with an illusion of him. 
And so he knows she's been having this fantasy life with him all this time. But to me, it's still like, okay, someone tells me they've been having fantasy, an intense, all embracing, all encompassing fantasy life about me for years. (laughs) Creepy. That would be kind of creepy. (laughs) Although he does say he's often thought of her like he's he's still has this emotional connection. That That's he, not that the same formed. thing as saying I'm oh. fantasizing about you 24 <laughs> seven. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, so the they what they end up having is she's there to sort of introduce them to this vision of Talos and Burnham and Spock. So we can communicate with them without having to go over subspace, which is a brilliant idea. Yes, using the yeah. Talosians as sort of uh, your 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 AT&T long distance calling. Uh, ask your parents, kids. Uh, so. Um, so they have this 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 discussion, which I think is great. It avoids Section Thirty One's eavesdropping um, on on their communications. And Spock tells him that Section Thirty One wa- is looking for his memories of the future, which seems obvious for their mission, which is to protect the Federation at all costs. And knowing the future helps that job really well. Um, and asks Pike to bring Discovery to them, which is a violation of his orders, right? So um, they decide to do a spore jump, get right there. And And why is not Stamets or anybody saying, hey, what about those Joe whatevers that we met a couple episodes ago that said every time we use the spore drive, we're trashing their ecosystem? Well, did it? Nobody even brings that up. Did they not like undermine that by then to making it? It wasn't about the spore drive that it was about you. Who was if, living if, in there? If they meant us to understand that, they didn't communicate it clearly to the audience. No, I, I, I mean, there was sort of this shift without an explicit reference, this shift to focusing on, no, you have to get this. We have to destroy this guy or get him out of here because he's killing the, all the, the little spore people. Um, and it wasn't so much about the the discovery being in the spore space. So, yeah, I thought they were dealing with both problems and they just. They didn't communicate clearly enough if they meant to say, oh, it was all about Hugh. Right. Well, and and that's sort of their out for the spore drive, right? I mean, we've assumed that one of them. Right. One of the ways that they're going to eventually get rid of the spore drive is saying, well, we can't use something that's destroying somebody's universe. Um, So that so that might be it. Um, But Ariam, under the influence of the alien probe, sabotages the spore drive before the jump. And frames Tyler for it, which is a very it was a very clumsy. Like, why would Tyler be that clumsy about yeah. leaving it, leaving traces? But I, I liked I liked how he immediately leapt to the correct solution and used 21st century slang to say somebody spoofed my command codes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, spoof is a, is a very 21st century. Um, but what 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 does the probe or Arium gain by by sabotaging the drive? What's their what's their reason? I assume this the Aryum is playing it is it may not have an overall plan, but if Spock knows stuff about the future that could thwart the robotic factions, the Terminator factions or the Skynet faction, whatever they are, um, that Aryum wants to keep that knowledge away from the Discovery crew and other people. And so she's even though she doesn't have an ultimate end game for how to get rid of Spock. She's doing she's at the moment just trying to throw obstacles in the way, but yet doesn't disable the warp drive. They still get there. 
It's just they get yeah. there a little slower. Well, she she may not have permissions to disable uh, the warp drive the way she does the spore drive, but it's you're right. It's it's something they don't make fully clear. Yeah, it's a little clumsy. Um, so then we get Burnham's memory of what happened between her and Spock, and it's exactly what we assumed yeah. it was. Oh, by the way, by the way, so Pike's when they can't go there using the spore drive, Pike's solution is to try to fool or delay recognition of what's happening. Say, let's go to Starbase 11, which is within two light years of of uh, Talos 4. And that's actually the Starbase where the menagerie is set. Except in the menagerie, they say Talos 4 is only five or six days away at maximum warp, which would be way more than two two light years. But still, it's like we've seen that Starbase before. That, and it is, by, it is near Talos 4. Right. Very, very well done. Do your research, uh, writers, this episode. Um, so, yeah, so we get Burnham's memory of this of this event. And it's essentially what we thought it would be, where she rejected Spock in such a way as to to to, to, to break off their uh, their connection, um, emotional connection for his own for his own good. Um, so when she tried to run away, she made Spock not follow her by telling him he's a freak, that his humanity was too small to matter that he's not capable of love, and then she calls him a weird little half-breed, which Spock And that's does not... such, such a more charged term in the early 21st century than it was in the 1960s, because Spock, in the original series, got called a half-breed more than once, and it wasn't emotionally devastating to him. Although in the, he also wasn't a, you know, an eight year old boy or whatever he was. No, I, I can headcanon it, but it still feels like, OK, guys, this is this is sensibilities of modern times being imposed on a situation where they don't automatically apply. Right. Although and also like is Spock not an adult I mean, now. Does he not get like what Burnham was trying to do? Well, and- he, he, he does. I mean, he even tells her and I like the fact he says this. He says, I understand you were trying to sever our emotional connection, a primitive tactic, but logical. And then she says, no, it was more than that. I was trying to save your life, idiot. Right. Um, but um, but I, I I I you know, it is a traumatic childhood thing. And this is not the ma- fully mature Spock. But in terms of like the term half breed, he would go. I, I have to think if you said that to the real Spock, if Spock were a real person, he would go, "What's the problem with that term? I am a breed. I am bred from two different species. I am by definition a half breed. I don't care if that has pejorative connotations to you or not. Well, it's kind of like kind of kind of emotional like in, term. Yeah, it's kind of like in the episode with Excalibur in it, where the uh, vision of Abraham Lincoln refers to Lieutenant Uhura as a negress and says, oh, I'm sorry if that offends you. And she's like, why would a word bug me? Right. The 1960s was much different from today in some ways, yeah. <laughs> more advanced in some ways. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah. I, 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 I like, though, the way this scene plays out where, you know, she's telling Spock, I'm leaving because the logic extremists make this situation unsafe for me to be here for you and 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 everybody. And And Spock is like, Safe is uh, safe is a relative construct. Safe has inconsistent meanings. And it's like, that's exactly how I would want to argue that if I was like an eight year old. And and I like her response because he's playing word games with her at this point. And rather than engage him on the word games, she just says, stop it. I have to also give props to the way that it was. This scene was directed where it was kind of jumping between the child actors and the adult actors. Yeah. Yeah. To, to make that connection. 
Um, and even like with, when the child actor is crying, you see the tears coming down the face of, of the adult. The adult. Yeah. And so there's there's that that interesting uh, moment there. Um, and, and calling him a half breed is an emotionally loaded term. I get that. And so he but as a child, he was still a, a child. Chi Vulcan children still are ruled somewhat by their emotions. Yeah. Um, maybe less so than human children. But but Spock, especially given that he's half human. I like it. So when she's trying to break off with him or, you know, break off his emotional connection, she initially one of the things she says is, I don't want a freak like you as a brother. You are not capable of love. And then we get a very powerful line from the young Spock, which is I am. And that's, I think, the only time we've had Spock say I am capable of love. I mean, he's clearly is. He clearly shows that he loves Jim Kirk as, you know his captain, but, and his friend, but he never says, I am capable of love. Right. What, didn't Uhura once confront him with that or something? Was it Uhura? Well, I know there's a scene early on where Uhura is like trying to get him to do this little romantic fantasy with her about what it's like on Vulcan when the moon right. is full. Right, right, um, right. And he's, Vulcan has no moon. Mr. Spock, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. I love Uhura. Uh, so, um, we have, um, section 31 fall, uh, show up, they follow discovery to Talos and, uh, they both try to beam up Burnham and Spock at the same time, which yeah. is oh, generally oh, a bad idea. Way, oh yeah. By the way, another revelation from the confrontation scene, um, young Spock has part of the reason he's bonded with Burnham is because he wants, he knows he has this human half. And he's helping her learn about it. And she had agreed to teach him the ways of Earth. And then he says, and maybe we could live there one day. So apparently the two of them have talked about living on Earth as part of exploring his human side, which is also something we haven't really had put on the table before. But now they're showing us this is why he went down the Vulcan path rather because it's always been a question. Why did he choose the Vulcan path over the human path? Was it just because? He was on Vulcan. I, wouldn't you think it through a little bit more? And it's like, yeah, he did. But this is what happened. And this is what pushed him down that path. Right. So he says he called her a catalyst to escape emotion and logic. I mean, escape emotion and, and drive himself into logic uh, instead, um, which is interesting. So Spock is, is, is not as much of a monolith in, in logic as once believed. I mean, he's explored his human side his, in his emotion, like in the cage. and. Yeah, is delved and, into logic, and, and eventually in the later seasons of the original series, and especially in the movies, he comes to more of an integration of the two parts of his nature. Right. Once we, once we get into his appearances in the movies, and then in Next Generation, especially Spock is just comfortable with where he sits in between these the, these two parts of his nature, uh, human and Vulcan. Um, so very Hegelian. Uh, yes. <laughs> It might be an interesting discussion about Spock as a Christ figure, but that's for another episode uh, uh, sometime. Uh, so, section, like so I was saying, section 31 followed Discovery to Talos. They're both trying to beam up Burnham and Spock at the same time. That's generally a bad idea with transporters. Uh, Vina appears to Pike to tell them to, says, let them go. Let us all go. Um, she doesn't say why, but just wants them to trust her. Says it's the only way. It's the only way. And we all know what the what, what's going on, but they don't, uh, as usual, the audience. Section 31 thinks they beamed them aboard oh. their ship. 
also the fact Section 31 shows up at this point because Tyler has been confined to his quarters. And and so Pike says, well, Tyler couldn't have told them. So now Tyler, Pike knows that Tyler has been framed, which is going to lead to a, to a mole hunt in our next episode. <laughs> right, right. So um, they think Leland thinks that uh, Spock and Burnham are on board his ship. Uh, but of course, it's a television projection. Spock and Burnham return to Discovery in in a shuttle. I, I, I love the say goodbye, Spock. Goodbye, Spock. I, I love that. <laughs> Good night, Gracie. Uh, yeah. So, uh, which is actually an interesting voyage home connection. Anyway, uh, Star Trek Four: the, the Whales, George and Gracie. Because, um, wait, doesn't he, well, doesn't he say that in Voyage Home? Say goodnight, goodbye, Spock? Goodbye, Spock? He's, I don't like, remember. When mm-hmm. Kirk is with Spock and, um, what's her name? The 20th century woman. Biologist. Uh, the uh-huh. biologist. Um, and he drops him off in the park. As from the pickup truck, and says, "said say goodnight, Spock." And he's—I think he does say goodnight, Spock. Oh, as he walks okay. away, I have and to he's look. Got that a head up. injury at that point. Right, right, right. So uh, yeah, yes, he's got the thing around his head. So uh, I have to look. Did that too one much up. LDS back in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> Made everyone's day in Utah. Yes, <laughs> yes, it did. Uh, so th- this is about when we get Georgia's line about the uh, in her universe, Talosians tried to trick her, so she wiped them and their stupid singing plants off the face of the planet, which is. That's up there with Saru's line as the best yeah. line from the episode. So uh, yeah. that was good. Um, so the well, what we're what we're dealing with is the Red Angels are. We're told right up, right up explicitly, the Red Angel is trying to change the timeline to prevent all sentient life in the galaxy from being wiped out by an unknown third party. And this is I, and this is uh, Burnham's statement as a fact. So there's no longer any question about what's going on. That there are two parties at work here. Um, and one of them is controlling the the probe, and the other one is the Red Angel. So that's and since since we're told it's all life in the galaxy, that suggests that this is Skynet trying to wipe out all life in the, the galaxy in the future. Right. Some AI is is in control. That's sort of the 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 implication. So, um, Ed, do you have any other notes on this episode? A few little things. Um, number one, I like the fact I it really clicked for me this episode. The Section Thirty One ship does not have a traditional bridge. There's like no place that Leland sits with other people at consoles around him. So I like that as a bit of design. There's a, um, by the way, there's a, a video, a YouTube video on the Star Trek channel that's a little featurette about the production design of Section 31. Uh-huh. So folks, uh, I'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes, but uh, go oh, check cool. that out. Yeah. Um, also, something that's been bugging me for a few episodes is when Pike is talking to folks on the bridge. He's whenever he talks to Owo Sikun, he calls her Owo. And I understand Owo Sikun is a polysyllabic name, but it's a little you don't just do that to people. (laughs) And I understand how she because it can make you start messing with people's names and they haven't given you permission. I mean, if she said, call me Owo, it would be fine. But she they haven't shown her saying that. And to mess with somebody's name like that when they're not a close friend and they're your subordinate is unprofessional behavior for an officer. And precisely in part, because if the person is uncomfortable, they're your subordinate. They can't say, sir, please refer to me by my actual name. Right. Um, So that kind of has. (laughs) Yeah. I so I guess I can headcanon that by saying she said, call me Owo at some point. We just never saw it because it's not meant to be mean on his part. It's meant to be affectionate. But there are reasons in the in 
professional organizations like the military, why superiors don't just do things like that. Um, uh, also, there's a moment in where after the at the end of the episode where Giorgio is talking to Leland and Leland is like, if you knew they the Telosians had these abilities, why didn't you tell me the full extent of their abilities? And she says um, that she wanted to see him explain himself to the admirals. And she says, oh, Leland, I wonder how this will work out for you. And so she's now this is part of the story arc of she's trying to advance in Section 31 at Leland's expense. But she's just made a huge tactical mistake. She's handed him a loaded gun because all he has to do with the admirals now is say she knew about these abilities. She deliberately withheld the knowledge of that for me to mess with this mission. It's not that she didn't think to tell me. She confessed to my face that she didn't tell me in order to make my job harder to embarrass me in front of you. She is not only insubordinate, she is subverting our missions. Get her out of here. Right. Right. This, I mean, she can always deny, but, but he has that ability now of she, she actually came out and said it. Yeah. Um, and he may have tapes of her saying it, you know? Um, so then at the end of the episode, discovery is the most wanted ship in the galaxy. And we're going to run in the, crew agrees and and that's our out and i also noticed ooh, spock has a nice leather trench coat <laughs> right <laughs> so those were my notes uh, i wonder if he's gonna be uh shaved in a uniform coming up but we'll, we'll i see. hope not i think the beard is working for him <laughs> well the beard always works better yeah um the, the discovery has uh been bearded as we say uh, yeah. this season grown uh, the beard grown the beard uh so we uh I think that's it. Uh, before we finish out, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek. And today we're going to thank by name, Lawrence Z, Maria N, Patricia R, Ron S, and Ryan W. Through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, they make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows we're doing at SQPN. Um, and you, you, I encourage you to go check them out and see if there's other shows you might be interested in that we're doing. You can join them in helping us and supporting uh, our mission by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, like I said, that's it from us. What did you think of this episode, if memory serves? Uh, did you like it as much as we did? did was there uh, other things we didn't come up with? Or do you have interesting feedback on some of our theories or conclusions? Um, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash Trek or the SQPN Facebook page. Uh, you can go to facebook.com slash StarQuest Media, and you can leave us some feedback there or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. You can find the links uh, that we talked about. Some the, I'll try to put that link to the featurette, the, the video on the section 31 in our show notes at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time. We'll be discussing the next episode coming up on Star Trek Discovery Project Daedalus. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, the real question is, how is it I can remember tomorrow? <laughs>